It was Saturday, October 19th, and I was at the New Beverly Cinema in Los Angeles for the 2019 all-night horror show, and I was worried that all the good seats would be taken by the time I got in. But considering that tickets to this event sold out in mere seconds, I thought to myself, hey, at least I have a ticket, good seat or not. I define a good seat as one with quick access to the aisle. That way I won't have to inconvenience my fellow moviegoers by doing the whole excuse me, pardon me, sorry, excuse me, pardon me thing all night every time I needed to go to the restroom to snort a line or two. Luckily, I found a good seat despite having a guy with bedhead sit in front of me, which meant that every once in a while he would sit up straight, his wayward strands sticking up through the bottom of the screen every which way but loose, resulting in me watching the films as if I were viewing them through a creepy cornfield. Which kind of added to the whole Halloween vibe he said while trying to make a positive out of the overwhelmingly negative. The night began with an intro by host-slash-programmers Brian Quinn and Phil Blankenship. They gave us a quick rundown of what to expect. Six horror films, all secret surprise picks of which we would not know until they played. And as is the custom with the all-night horror show, the movies would not be old or new favorites that are often seen around this time of year. Instead, they would all be films that were rarely screened in this neck of the woods. That is, if they were ever screened at all. Brian credited Phil for doing 90% of the work for the last couple all-nighters. Phil then said to us that if we loved any of the films shown tonight, they were his choices. If we hated any of the films, it was all Brian. The lights went down, and we were treated to a Mighty Mouse cartoon called The Witch's Cat, about a witch flying around town on a broomstick, looking for mice to feed to her cat, who is also along for the ride. They find a group of Halloween-celebrating mice, and the chase begins. Now... It's been nearly a month, so my memory is kind of hazy, but I think that at some point, Mighty Mouse eventually came in to save the day. I'm not sure. Following that, we watched a trailer reel that included the films Meet Cleaver Massacre, Deadly Games, He Knows You're Alone, Silent Scream, and The Final Terror. The first film turned out to be 1988's Edge of the Axe, directed by Joseph Bronstein, which is a funny way to spell José Ramón Laras. Senor Bronstein helms this movie about a mask-wearing axe murderer going around axe-murdering all the ladies in a small woodsy town somewhere up there in the mountains. And good luck convincing the sheriff about these murders, by the way. He's more concerned about keeping the pristine reputation of his town. So if, let's say, a woman's rotting corpse is discovered hanging upside down from the attic of a bar, well, that there is a clean-cut case of suicide. Say, wasn't that part-time hooker found dead near the train tracks with multiple wounds that looked to have been done with an axe? Nope, that there is just another everyday case of someone walking onto the tracks and getting hit by a train. But I can't blame the sheriff. I can only blame the people who go along and enable his bullshit, like the owner of said bar and the conductor of said train, and the deputy who picks up evidence with his bare hands before taking it to get dusted for fingerprints. Most of all, I blame the people who voted for this man to become sheriff in the first place. They should have seen this coming, but no, they liked him, because to quote one of these assholes in an anecdote I just made up, he speaks just like I speak. If you like giallo-ish movies that make little to no sense and feature laughable dialogue and performances, then give Edge of the Axe a try. It was a hit with the crowd, getting big reactions from scenes like the one where the hero's love interest tries out his fancy computer, and she types in a question. The hero asks her, what question did she just ask the computer? And she replies, I asked it if you were gay. A fair question to ask, because considering how shitty the women get treated in this film, all the men in this town must either be super gay or ultra hetero. That's right, kids. Here, no penis resides in the middle. 
The answer the computer gives to the love interest's gay question, by the way, is, and I quote, data incomplete. And that's why I missed the 1980s. Because nowadays, you don't even have to ask your computer. It's already volunteering those answers to you, whether you want to know or not. Six women, one man, all dead. Edge of the Axe. Gerald's a cool kid with a keen computer. Now that he's met Lillian, the lines of communication are definitely open. It's called Icarus. You can ask it anything you like. But the readout spells trouble. Wait a minute, what happened here? And murder is the mode. What shape is that body? Hamburger meat. A killer is loose and the whole town's on edge. Edge of the axe. Gerald, why do you have the names of all the women who were killed in your computer file? Oh, she's coming this way. Bodacious time friends. Roderick, you have a little something going on with Rita. Rita had your name and number in her phone book. disappeared. What do you mean? She's gone. Who's Charlie? He's my cousin. The other night I asked my computer to check the hospitals to find my cousin. And they released him from a mental hospital two years ago in Patterson. Are you spending too much time with this girl on those stupid games that you play? You know, you're going to get in trouble and you're going to have microchips for brains. Almost all the women who had been killed, they had worked in a psychiatric ward. Christopher... The situation is terminal. Can Lillian deprogram the killer before he catches his next victim? No! 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 Well, now you got two more, Doc. I tell you, this place stinks of death. The other night I had a dream, and Charlie was walking towards me smiling. He was carrying a bloodstained axe. He was going to kill me. Charlie, is that you? Edge of the Axe. It's a great night for bad dreams. After a trailer reel that included Dracula, Prince of Darkness, When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, The Gorgon, Night of the Blood Monster, Frankenstein Created Woman, The Mummy's Shroud, Twins of Evil, and Hands of the Ripper, the second film turned out to be a rare technicolor print of the 1967 Hammer production, Quatermass and the Pit, which takes place in the land of free health care and bad teeth, and evidently worse public transportation, because a bunch of these Brits have to deal with the temporary closure of one of their subways. You know how it is. It's the same everywhere. Every year, different city departments want to ensure that they get the same amount in their yearly budget, and if they haven't spent it all, they won't get it. So down they go, tearing up perfectly fine places while leaving the areas in need of fixing alone. Well, these clowns are in for a surprise, because they end up finding the skeletal remains of, get this, ape men. Yeah, right. I don't know about you, but I didn't come from some ape. I came from the first two humans placed here on this planet by God. And their names were Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Yeah, that's right. I heard about you. I asked the computer, and it told me everything I needed to know. 
Anyway, Professor Quatermass is pretty sure that these supposed ape men are actually aliens from five million years ago. And he's probably right on account of the giant metallic vessel that they end up digging up. Gradually, weird and crazy stuff happens. And at one point, and if this is a spoiler, then you have clearly discovered time travel and need to go back 52 years to when this movie was new. Martians get mixed up in the plot. And when you see them during a sequence that involves recording someone's deeply hidden psychic thoughts, well, it's not quite the video log from the event horizon. Based on some audience members' reactions, I wasn't alone in thinking how uh, quaint these Martians looked. Okay, fine. They look like grasshoppers. I don't mean the drink either. I mean like the insect that Johnny Five's stupid ass crushed before realizing he couldn't reassemble it. Hey, I mentioned the drink just a second ago. And speaking of drinks, there's a part where one dude working at the pit starts losing his shit. And so this lady pulls a flask out of her bag to give this guy a shot of calm the hell down. I want to party with this chick who's more down with the spirits than Quatermass, who prefers not to drink before noon. If you ask me, he sounds like a man who's never had the pleasure of a 7 a.m. beer. Ah, uh, there's nothing like a 7 a.m. beer, except the 7 a.m. beer while taking a shower. Oh, I had never seen the BBC serial that this all originated from, but I have seen the previous Quatermass films, The Quatermass Experiment and Quatermass 2 Electric Boogaloo, and I got a kick out of them. They're all so properly British while everything around them gets increasingly nutty. I like this film the most. And if you like ultra-serious sci-fi films with touches of horror here and there, you might dig this too. Or check out the 1985 Toby Hooper movie, Life Force, which I see as an unofficial Quatermass film that's doped up on cocaine, mescaline, and ecstasy. Get back! Who were they running from? What have they seen? Whom do they fear? There are five million answers to these questions, and every one of them is a shocker. No, sorry. I saw it. It's horrible. It's horrible. Terror, five million years old, spills into our time to make two worlds collide. What is happening here and now can affect the next five million years. It was what I was afraid of. The thing got a huge intake of energy. The very substance of it seemed to be coming alive. And you can't see this world any longer. They feel it. They see it. The archaeologist who digs back into the past to unearth more horror than the human mind can bear. the scientist, who comes face to face with five million years of terror. Ronnie, it's Barbara. She's the one. Get down here, quick. She can see into the pit and knows the terrifying truth. Oh, he can see into the pit, but he will not believe what he sees. They were coming. Who? What were? Them. Them. He saw the creatures. They were alive. Alive? You descend into the pit of hell as you share their horror. Listen, I'm advising you all to leave. There may be grave danger. I tell you, this could be dangerous. Get back! Get back! Ah! 
before the third film, we were treated to an episode of the Beatles television cartoon series from the 1960s, which included a story about a mad scientist who tries to force Paul to marry a vampire Batwoman, and another story where the Fab Four are messing around in a wax museum. I didn't even know the Beatles had a television series, and I wish I could tell you that it was good, but aside from the use of actual Beatles songs on the soundtrack, it was really nothing to scream about. Not unless you were a teenage girl from the 1960s who, who would scream for anything Beatles-related. That was followed by a trailer reel that included The Beast with Five Fingers, Attack of the Giant Leeches, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, The Original Little Shop of Horrors, The Thing from Another World, and White Zombie. After the trailers, we watched a short subject titled Intimate Interviews about a lady by the name of Dorothy West, not to be confused with the Harlem Renaissance writer of the same name, who goes to interview Bela Lugosi in his backyard. They discuss his Hungarian background, his study of American slang, and other things, before Bella suddenly stares off at the middle distance and says, I'm coming. Which creeps Miss West out, and she runs away. We all had a good laugh with... We all had a good laugh with that one. <laughs> before settling in for 1943's The Mad Ghoul, about a college professor named Morris, who in between teaching pre-med students and future big pharma types about chemicals and their chemistry, likes to do things like kill innocent monkeys with nerve gas. This asshole didn't even come up with the recipe for this gassy concoction himself. He just took it from the ancient Mayans, as opposed to the modern Mayans, who would use the gas to kill their sacrificial victims, before taking the sacrificial victim's heart out as part of some dumb ritual that is supposed to appease their stupid gods. So Morris ends up using the gas on his big strapping lad of a student, Ted, on account of the good doctor having a thing for Ted's girlfriend, Isabel. The way it works is, he gasses this dude, effectively killing him. But then he juices them up with fluid from the hearts of the recently deceased. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you make yourself a mindless zombie who will do your bidding. By day, Ted, more like dead, my right people, is pretty much in regular person mode, still trying to work things out with Isabel. And by night, he is the titular mad ghoul, going on a killing tour with Dr. Morris, who instructs him to murder various people in order to continue with his experiments. When he's in mad ghoul mode, Ted reminded me of the mind-controlled assassins from the first Naked Gun film. I know they were referencing the Manchurian Candidate in that movie, but I wondered if maybe, just maybe, there wasn't a little subconscious pull from this movie as well? Or did the filmmakers behind the Manchurian Candidate take from the Mad Ghoul? Or maybe they didn't see the Mad Ghoul, but maybe Richard Condon, the author of the novel The Manchurian Candidate, maybe he saw this film and he stole from it in between stealing from the Robert Graves novel I, Claudius. Or maybe I should just move on. So you hear Isabel sing a couple times during the film, and it reminded me of how lame music used to be until they invented black people. Don't get me wrong. Her singing is pretty. I'm just saying it's the kind of singing that goes well with mayonnaise and watercress, washed down with a weak cup of tea. Is this the time period people refer to as when America used to be great? If so, are these the same people who talk about taco trucks on every corner as if that were a bad thing? Because that would make sense. I mean... What I'm saying is, I can see those same people growing up in New Hampshire or wherever the fuck they all come from, these Dartmouth-attending fucks, the men in plaid suits and straw boater hats, the women in tennis dresses and saddle shoes, and they're all strolling down the street, snacking on toasted cheese sandwich while snapping their fingers, because everything is mighty fine. Is that what we're supposed to want to come back to? I don't know, man. I don't even like watercress. 
While it's not an unforgettable classic, The Mad Ghoul is an entertaining programmer, to use the parlance of the times, and it's good times in a second half of a double feature sort of way. And if you're the kind of person who has Turner Classic movies on all day in the background, you'll probably like this movie. I am that kind of person, and so I did. Sit down. Now listen carefully. You understand me? Answer me. I understand you. Good. I'm your friend. Your only friend. You're ill. You need me. I alone can cure you. You'll do everything I say. Everything you say? You'll devote your life to science. I will make you well. I'll make you famous. But you will forget Isabel. Forget Isabel? Isabel doesn't want you. She doesn't love you. It's me she loves. Do you understand? Isabel loves me. Isabel loves you. Now, Ted, you stay here. Do you understand? Stay here. Stay here. During the intro to the next film, Phil told us that with only three movies left, we would be watching the three best Ghoulies films. He then told us, all kidding aside, that the film we were about to watch would also be its first ever repertory screening, and that it took legal wrangling in order to pull it off. We watched the trailer reel featuring Scream 2, I Know What You Did Last Summer, Disturbing Behavior, Urban Legends Final Cut, and Don't Say a Word, followed by a UK print of the fourth feature of the night, the 2000 film Cherry Falls. And this is where I give out a long sigh. Because this stars the late Brittany Murphy, who honestly should still be here with us being goofy and adorable and talented as hell and all that, but she isn't. So what are you going to do? Well, for starters, you can remember her by watching some of the better movies she was in, such as this one. Murphy plays Jody, your typical small-town teenager living your typical teenager small-town life. Except things are getting decidedly non-typical when someone starts murdering her fellow typical teens for the sin of not sinning. What I mean is that this wacko is killing virgins. It's such an inspired premise. Usually these slashers are about the punishment of deviants who lay down with the demons of drugs, alcohol, and premarital sex. But in this film, it's the chased who are getting chased. And once the town sheriff played by Michael Bean discovers this, he's faced with quite the conundrum. I mean, how does one tell the entire town that a serial killer is targeting virgins? And if so, will you even get taken seriously? And if one is taken seriously, what then? Will this mean all the non-experienced are going to run out the door in some kind of wanna-bang frenzy? You'll have to watch the movie to find out. Personally, I think you'd have to tell everybody. Not just to save lives, but because as someone who owns stock in both Durex and Trojan, I would appreciate all the extra money I would make off of all these kids. In fact, I think if I had the wherewithal to do it, I'd fund some tactical assassinations in small towns all over this great country of ours. You'd find the virgins through Reddit and 4chan and trick them into thinking that they're going to get some. Then you'd give them all Colombian neckties and spray paint the word virgin on their chest so there'd be no mistake. No one would miss those kids, except their fellow miscreants and maybe their parents. And how the money would flow. As the trailers that preceded this alluded to us, Cherry Falls is very much of and from the glut of teen slashers that came out post-Scream in the late 90s 
to early 2000s. But it's also one of the better post-screamers. It's closer to the Wes Craven joint in tone, in that there's just as many laughs as there are scares. And while it's very much a smart-ass satire at times, there are also very strong and sincere dramatic moments that might catch you off guard. For me, it was specifically an exceptionally acted scene between Murphy and Candy Clark that took place in a library, and it reminded me, oh yeah, this is from the director of Romper Stomper. But by the time of the climax, the film pulls out all the stops, and based on the reactions from the audience, they were digging it as much as I was digging it. It certainly seemed to wake them up from what I could sense was a bit of slumber time with the last couple deliberately paced films. I realized how lucky we were to get to see Cherry Falls in a movie theater, considering that it didn't even get a theatrical release in the United States, where instead it premiered in an edited-for-television version on the basic cable USA network. Reportedly, it was a toxic combination of a change of distributors, plus the United States Senate shining an unwanted post-Columbine spotlight on teen violence in movies that synced it. That's too bad, because I think among all the scream wannabes that were out there making tidy profits, Cherry Falls could have been a contender. I remember the story like this. It was a dark and scary night, kind of like tonight. 25 years ago, a horrible crime was committed in the town of Cherry Falls. Now. You haven't heard about Rod and Stacy? Did they break up? Break up! Wake up! They're dead! What their parents hid in the past. Nobody has seen or heard of her for over 25 years. Mom, you know anything about a woman named Laura Lee Sherman? No. Why? Is haunting the present. Who is it? Is your mom home? No. She didn't tell you I was coming by. Four teenagers have been killed. A fifth viciously attacked. All victims appeared to be virgins. Whoever has decided to take themselves off the endangered species list and have sex. I need to ask you a personal question. About how far you've gone, base-wise? Can you go further? Tell me about Laura Lee Sherman. Tell me. That was 25 years ago. Do you think she goes all the way? Doubt it. Come on. This is my post. I can't just split. Cherry Falls. Don't you want your first time to be something beautiful, something romantic? After the film, we were then told that there were free donuts outside the theater, and I decided not to partake as a way to demonstrate to myself that I did indeed have willpower and that I was indeed a man of strength. That, and I also didn't want to risk the sugar crash that would make it tougher to get through the night. It was a noble experiment that resulted in failure, when after holding out for the entire break, I went ahead and grabbed the delicious old-fashioned before the next trailer reel began. But before that, we were told by Brian and Phil that the final two films were going to play back-to-back, with no intermission between them, as there had been between the previous films. They then thanked the projection staff for keeping things running smoothly, as well as the audience for keeping up with all the craziness of the evening. Then we watched previews for the films Mark of the Witch, The Witch's Curse, Simon King of the Witches, and The Exorcist, so it wasn't too hard to guess that the next movie was going to involve witches and devil shit. Sure enough, the fifth film of the marathon, the 1975 Spanish production Demon Witch Child, involved both subjects. Man, this movie does not mess around. 
It lets you know how hard it intends to play right from the very beginning, as we watch an old lady walk into a church and proceed to knock things over as if she were a common house cat. Then she steals a chalice and walks over to a statue of the Archangel Michael slaying the devil, where she leaves a candle next to the Dark Lord, as if he needed any more fire in his life. See, this old lady is an evil Satan-worshipping witch who is getting all set up for a good old human sacrifice for her master, and she makes no bones about her intentions. The witch gets taken in by the police, and they give her the third degree because said human sacrifice is a local baby she kidnapped. They even bring in the baby's mother to beg and plead for her son's return, and the witch calls her a bitch, straight out telling her that it ain't gonna happen, and that baby's as dead as my faith in humanity. And while the witch's faith in her master is strong, it's evidently not stronger than sodium pentothal, and upon finding Finding out that the cops are going to dope her up with truth serum in order to get the boy's location out of her, she exits stage right, right out the window, and falls to her bloody death. This news does not go well with the deceased's fellow witches at the coven. After sacrificing the baby, I told you this movie doesn't mess around, they end up giving the police chief's daughter Susan a necklace that allows the spirit of the dead witch to possess her, leading Susan to raise proverbial havoc. First, she starts off nice and slow by talking back to her family. Then she moves on to playing some of the Exorcist's greatest hits, like Levitation and Swearing Up a Storm. She's particularly fond of using pejorative terms for people your computer would identify as gay. Then she moves up to expert-level tricks like changing her appearance so that instead of looking like the Spanish version of young Brian Italis from Atonement, she looks more like the ugly balding witch who resides within her, before chopping a dude's penis off and sending it to his lady in a container. And that's the way you do it, there are a lot of surprisingly harsh moments in this film, and they all sound shocking when described, but the movie goes about them in such a goofy, low-rent manner, I mostly laughed at it. On top of that, the English dubbing is just as goofy and low-rent, and for all I know, watching it in the original language could improve the overall film, but I don't think it could improve it by that much. The important thing is, is that it's never boring. And that's all you could ask for when watching anything, really. But by this point in the marathon, there were quite a few snorers in the audience, so maybe it wasn't as entertaining for them as it was for me. By the way, if you're predisposed to be snoring, how about you just leave? Now that's assuming that you're by yourself at this marathon. If you had a friend with you and he or she was awake the whole time, then I'm even angrier that they didn't wake your loud ass up. I usually go to these things with a buddy who does snore, and I am so on top of that shit it's not even funny. I'll start with a nudge, then a shove. Then I'll punch him in the arm if that's what it takes, because he is not going to intrude upon the audience's enjoyment, or mine for that matter. But the rest of you, solo snorers and snore enablers, on the other hand, I'd punch in the fucking face if I had the money and the clout to get away with it. That's why I have to give it up to the gentleman who sat a couple seats down from me. He started with that snoring during this film, and despite being a stranger, I got up and I nudged. He was up for a while. And then he started nodding off again, but this time he caught himself. So he then got up and left for the rest of the film for what I can only assume was some fresh air or coffee or a bump because he came back before the next film and was back to being bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, at least until he nodded off again and then just took off for good, as he should. They tell me that, that you, that you know where my son is. What about your son? He's my only child, lady. I can't have more children. It could be that you're a mother, too. Shut up, you stupid bitch. Please, won't you? If you know where he is, please tell me. He's so small, I... <laughs> Answer, you witch. Don't you have any feelings? 
<laughs> no, please don't shout at her. I, I know she'll tell me. I'll ask her on my knees if I have to. She'll give me back my son. Lady, tell me, for the love of God. Don't call me your lady and don't invoke your God. I know you know where he is. I know it. Give him back to me. I'll give you everything I possess. I'll sell everything I own. I'll give you anything you ask. But please give me back my son. <laughs> You'll never see him again. He'll be sacrificed to the great master. I'll give you everything. Why everything. don't you stop your whining? But please give Get me back my son. After a sci-fi remake trailer reel that included John Carpenter's The Thing, David Cronenberg's The Fly, Jim Wynorski's Not of This Earth, and Chuck Russell's The Blob, the sixth and final film of the night turned out to be 1993's Body Snatchers, the third adaptation of Jack Finney's novel about humans being replaced with alien duplicates hatched from pods. This version of the story takes place in an army base and focuses on teenage girl Marty, played by young adult Gabrielle Anwar, who along with her dad, her stepmom, and her half-brother are new to the whole place. While dad's out literally testing the waters on behalf of the Environmental Protection Agency, Marty's doing the out-of-place youngster thing, not being cool with her stepmom, making friends with fellow teenage girl Jen, and making googly eyes at dreamy helicopter pilot Tim, the entire time trying not to get too weirded out by the occasional odd sight and strange behavior among the soldiers. It's already a creepy enough place knowing that Forrest Whitaker stumbling around it. Hey there, Forrest. Goo goo ga ga. I want... I want milk. The audience applauded quite a bit during the opening credits, because plenty of genre favorites were involved in the making of the film. Among the screenwriters, you have B-movie legends Larry Cohen and Stuart Gordon, and frequent Abel Ferrara collaborator Nicholas St. John, which makes sense because Abel Ferrara directed this film. What doesn't make sense is that Abel Ferrara directed this film. If you're not familiar with Mr. Ferrara, he is definitely someone I feel comfortable calling an auteur, because his films are very much in a class of their own, and they always leave you wanting to take a shower after watching them. He's probably best known for the 1992 film Bad Lieutenant, and he remains a legend in the independent filmmaking scene. And so it's very interesting that Warner Brothers hired the guy to make this mainstream horror movie for them. Based on accounts by Mr. Ferrara, it went about as well as expected, which is to say, not well at all. And in the end, it got thrown away by the studio and remains, in my opinion anyway, criminally underseen. Of its many qualities, I feel that the look of the film is one of them. The cinematographer was Boyan Bazelli, who had shot Ferrara's previous films, and this appears to have been their final collaboration, which is too bad because they made beautiful visual music together. It's all creepy shadows mixed with shafts of light coming in through window blinds or cracks in doors, and the widescreen compositions have this way of making me feel claustrophobic, or even wide open spaces leave me feeling like there's nowhere to escape. Which is the whole point, right? It's like one pod person says to some humans that are attempting to escape, Go where? Body Snatchers has such an overwhelming sense of doom to it, where perhaps the aliens have a point, and they're not bullshitting when they tell you how screwed you are, because there's nowhere to go, because it's happening everywhere. So why not just give up and let it happen, baby? And the messed up part is, maybe they're right. I mean, look at us. Really, look at us. We fight over everything. We fight over politics. We fight over parking spaces. We're shooting each other at schools and we're stabbing each other for fucking chicken sandwiches. Why not let the aliens take us over so we'll all finally be one happy family? Well, minus the happy part because these pod people don't do emotions. But hey, I'm too emotional anyway. So let's just pod me up so I can be rid of these pesky feelings. 
Like a couple of the previous films in the marathon, this one is also deliberately paced. In other words, slow. And I can see that being tough on a sleepy audience around 6 in the morning. But that's also kind of the fun part. Trying not to fall asleep during a film where characters are warning others not to sleep. Because that's when the pod people take you over. It's pretty much broken into two acts, this movie, with the first act being all creepy setup. Then at the midpoint, there's a real banger of a scene featuring Meg Tilly's character. And as that concluded, some of the audience couldn't help but applaud because the scene is that good. And Tilly knocks it right out the park. From that point on, the second act is quite the ride and it's fun to watch what Ferrara is able to pull off with big studio money and more importantly, big studio drugs. I had seen this film once before on Cinemax back in 94 or 95 and I enjoyed it. But it was a lousy pad-and-scan transfer that really hurt the film, because a lot of the inherent creepiness of this movie comes from the way the shots are composed. Watching it in its full aspect ratio in a dark theater during the transitional period between night and day, well, it really amped up the chills for me, and it was like watching it for the first time, only better. There's something in the air. And it feels like fear. There's something in the night. And it seems like terror. There's someone in your bed. And it looks like you. Life will be simpler now. The only thing missing... Mommy? ...will be you. Mommy! What's the matter, honey? What's the matter? There's Mommy. She's right there. What happened? I've seen people at the infirmary exhibiting paranoia. People afraid to sleep. Get in bed. Afraid of family members. <laughs> people afraid of themselves. We gotta go right now! Oh, Marty, let's get out of here. They're out there. They're everywhere. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to run? Where are you going to hide? Nowhere. Because there's no one like you left. Body snatchers. The invasion continues. They kill to be you. After the film... It was straight to a Disney cartoon short, Trick or Treat, starring Donald Duck as a miserable asshole who pranks his trick-or-treating nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, rather than give them candy. I get it. It's a choice, right? It's right there in the phrase, Trick or Treat. But who actually goes with the trick option? Miserable assholes, that's who. Thankfully, there's a witch who witnesses all of this, and she decides to help the three little ducks out in doling out some much-needed payback to that son of a bitch. Because nothing makes one feel more patriotic about the United States than watching a piece of shit named Donald get a well-deserved punishment, the marathon then concluded with a film of the Star-Spangled Banner. Then the lights came up. Before stepping outside to the bright morning light, we were each given a special drink coaster for making it through the night. I grabbed yet another donut for the ride home, a glazed. It was now about seven on a Sunday morning, which meant that there was only one thing left for a God-fearing man such as myself to do. It's the only thing a God-fearing man could do on a Sunday morning, and the only thing a God-fearing man should do on a Sunday morning. I went home and slept. 
This has been the Exiles from Contentment podcast, recorded live in front of an empty room. Exiles from Contentment has been brought to you by anger, paranoia, resentment, depression, low self-esteem, and rally cigarettes. Now with less nicotine and less throat irritants. Remember, lady and gentlemen, if your cigarette tastes different, smoke rally. Episodes of this podcast can be downloaded at efcontentment.podbean.com. That's E as in EGADS. This asshole's podcast is terrible. F as in fuck this asshole's terrible podcast. Contentment as in something this asshole hasn't felt in a very long time. Dot pod as in podcast as in everybody's got their own goddamn podcast nowadays. And bean as in what the Mexican-American host of this podcast probably eats every day. Am I right, real Americans? The Exiles from Contentment podcast can also be downloaded at exiledfromcontentment.blogspot.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as EF Contentment, all one word. Follow or friend us so we can then immediately have your tweets and posts muted in order for us to have a higher friend and follower count while pretending that we care about you. You can also email us at exiledfromcontentment at gmail.com. Until our next ramblings, this is Princess Sparkle for the Exiled from Contentment podcast saying take care and be well.